On any given day, about 25% of students across the country, so, you know, UF, for example, that'd be about 13, 14,000 students would say, you know, I don't know if I want to live right now. That's a lot of gators that are struggling kind of on any given day, which doesn't mean that they'll attempt to take their life, but in that moment, they're wondering, is, like, is it worth it to keep living? You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash speaks with Dr. Megan Sixby, Associate Director at the CWC, about struggling with suicide. Hi, Megan. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Glad you're here. So you have been working with people who are thinking about suicide for 20 years or so, Mm -hmm. and that is not the, I imagine that's not the easiest thing to specialize in. What it can, yeah, it can, can be, be hard. Yeah. yeah. So what mm-hmm. drew you to, to that work? What drew you to working with people who are considering suicide? So, you know, when I was in ninth grade, my friend who's actually, whose name was Sarah as well, sat next to me in English class. We both made the uh, ninth grade junior varsity basketball team. She shot and killed herself. And for my whole, my friend group and my, our basketball team, it was pretty shocking. You know, we had no idea that she was struggling and just shocking. And we could talk later, but also uncommon for a 14, 15 year old female to shoot and kill themselves. That's not common. When I look back to that time, we were super shocked that she had, had died. We didn't see it coming. Um, I mean, I remember being in English class where she sat next to me and, you know, the guidance counselors came in and I don't even remember what they said, you know, but I don't know that it was anything very helpful. Um, And then going to basketball practice with her not there was weird and going to her funeral and seeing her mom and all of our friend group. It was just kind of a really surreal experience. And so it really got me at that time in my life. That was my first, I mean, minus an an elderly grandparent dying was my first experience with death. And it was kind of a shock, a lurch into that experience of death. And it just got me thinking, what did we, as a friend group, as a basketball team, what did we miss? What did we not do? What did we, you know, what could we have done differently? And so that's really kind of what started me into this profession into this world that has since become kind of my lifelong career. Sounds like that had such a significant impact on you. And I imagine for folks who are students who are really close to Sarah, also kind of traumatic. Absolutely. You know, and again, like I said, I can still remember her funeral and, and on her death anniversary. I remember the year that it kind of came back around where she had been dead longer than she had been alive. Um, and remember just thinking, gosh, how surreal that is. And would, where, what would life have been like for her today? And what could she have gotten through it if, if something had been different in her life, if somebody had helped or heard? So just that friend group, we're not close anymore. But with social media these days, I'm still able to see what their lives look like with their partners and children and, and jobs. And oftentimes wonder about her in that same regard, if she had been here still today. 
Yeah. So you've, you've really brought up a lot of important issues and considerations, even just in that one example. And so um, um, before we, as we go into this conversation, I wonder if we could make a couple of disclaimers, isn't the right word, but just for people who are listening, if, if you have struggled yourself with thinking about suicide, if you have maybe even survived a suicide attempt, or if you have lost loved ones to suicide, or maybe something in this conversation rem- reminds you of someone you're worried about right now, that all of those situations can be activating for distress. And what would you what would you want to say to those people who are listening to this conversation from from having had some level of personal experience with this? You know, and I, and I think the even just before that, just thinking the likelihood that folks listening have had personal themselves not wanting to live thoughts um, or an attempts or a family member or a friend is super high. I would almost say it's, it's absolutely certain, but obviously we can't guarantee that, you know, and I think it's hard because the thing that I would say and that a lot of people say is that they're, it won't always be this way, you know, but in that moment for folks that are struggling or if they've lost a loved one to suicide, it, it feels like it will always feel this way. And so it's hard to really see past this immediate pain because suicide's not about, well, I should say folks that are struggling with suicide, it's really that idea, not necessarily of wanting to die, but not wanting to continue to live in this much pain anymore. And so I think when people can really start understanding that suicide's not the problem, it's all of the things that have led up to that person not wanting to live, that that's the, you know, kind of quote unquote problem. So can we help with those pieces? Can those pieces feel like there's a potential for change or potential for something to be different? And that's where we can start to find those little glimmers of, okay, how can I work on this or look at this or try to make this a little bit different, which can be hard because that's a lot of times when things feel really hopeless, that it's not going to change. It's going to feel this way forever. I guess what I would say to people is if there's a way to find a glimmer of hope that, that something will be different down the road, how to really focus on that to try to work to make things different as best as you can. Which I'm imagining for somebody to get to a point where they're thinking that dying is the only way to solve the problems of living that they haven't been able to solve. Absolutely. That that a person who's reached that point where, you know, let's say it's me, I'm thinking about suicide. If I've reached that point, I've already tried to solve my problems. Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. already looked around at my life and made some efforts to solve my problems and concluded that they are unsolvable. At least Mm -hmm. that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I talk with students who have recently made an attempt to die and and for whatever reason didn't die, that's what they'll say. You know, they'll say, I've tried this counselor, that counselor, this counseling technique. I've spoken with my spiritual leader. I've tried this medication. I've tried, you know, like just on and on. Um, And they're exhausted. You know, they're exhausted in that attempt to make life have some meaning and find some hope in that. And so for me, just um, it's really important to honor that, to honor that journey, those attempts to make life feel different and try to offer some hope without 
you know, because I think sometimes when people try to offer hope, it feels really fake and phony and superficial. Trying to say, I, I hear that you've tried all of these things and I still want to keep trying because I think your life's worth living and I, which can sometimes feel in that moment, like it doesn't, it's hard to hear, right? It's hard to hear because of all of the, the things that the person has tried and just how exhausted they are and really trying to honor that. Offering hope is a really tricky business Mm -hmm. because because of the amount of artificial reassurances that people are used to getting like oh just hang in there it gets better or you can you can do this or absolutely just think of all the reasons just think of all the people who would miss you or there's Mm -hmm. so many ways that we respond to other people's pain that's just not helpful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a lot of times that's you know when I'll ask students or, or anybody that I'm talking with is really struggling. Have you reached out to people? Oftentimes that they, they'll say, yep, at the beginning. And then again, you're kind of met with those pieces over and over and over of whatever the cliche is, you know, God only gives as much as you can handle or the grass is greener on the other side or some version of those things. Then they just, they stop reaching out. And that's the, you know, again, when I think back to my friend, Sarah, I, I often think, did she reach out? And we didn't hear it. Or did she reach out and it got shut down accidentally? Obviously, I'll never know. But it's, it's people stop reaching out because it's that they're met with those messages that they feel like they're not being heard. You know, I, I worked with an eighth grader one time um, who was very suicidal for quite some time. And his teachers would say, and he told me his teacher said to him, these are the best years of your life. And he said, if these are the best years of my life, then I definitely don't want to live anymore. Because if this is as good as it's going to get, then why bother continuing to live? And that was always so, it was it was really poignant for me to hear that, really helpful for me to hear that. Because again, I think well-intended, the teachers were well-intended and the message wasn't heard. And I think that's so relevant for college students because I, I know I talk to so many college students for counseling who say that they have heard that about college, that college is the best, are the best years right, of their exactly, life. And it exactly. might actually be the most miserable they've ever been. And yeah, so if this is where you're supposed to have the time of your life right. and it's not going that way, right. then what else is there to live for? Exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, and so, you know, I'm always so thankful when somebody does decide to reach out or reach out to me in particular, or somebody that they know that they can kind of get connected, because that's what worries me is when people stop trying again, that that's the, which also makes sense, you know, so as we talk about these things today, I hope that I can communicate, I, I, I get that it makes sense. And I don't, I don't want them to die, just like I wished I could have changed things for Sarah. I think sometimes we offer hope as counselors just through being able to listen and really hear and validate how much pain Mm -hmm. somebody is in and be curious about what the pain is that led them to this Mm -hmm. place where they Mm -hmm. are thinking about dying as a way of of solving the pain, making the Mm -hmm. pain go away, that it's such a relief sometimes just to have a person listen and validate the pain and Mm -hmm. that, that often it's not that we're, yeah, it's not that we're providing false hope or making any promises about the future, but just the relief that another human being can really hear and validate it's powerful. And Mm -hmm. I think if you've never experienced it, 
you're listening, you won't know how powerful that can be mm -hmm. until you receive that mm -hmm. from someone mm -hmm. else. Right. And, I, and again, I think that that because oftentimes we're not heard or we're invalidated again, not intentionally from people who care about us. There's people who care about us. They'll, they, they say things will get better. They, they say you're stronger than you know, or they offer us advice, you know, just shake it off or, you know, whatever the advice may be. And they offer those things because, because they care, you, you know, which, but again, in that space for that person at that time really sends a different message. And oftentimes when we are out of that space and we can say, I get where they were coming from. I get why they were saying that because if they care, they care and they don't want to see us hurting and us in pain. Um, but it's, but it sends, it's, it just sends a different message. And so again, sometimes somebody who has either lived that experience and knows that that's unhelpful or somebody who's kind of had some professional training, so to speak, a, a counselor, for example, um, they can, they can hear differently and that can really go a long way, like you're saying. Yeah. I wonder if we could differentiate some of the terms that we're using. And so just to help clarify the, the different circumstances. So there's someone who's considering suicide or thinking about suicide. There's someone who has attempted suicide and then there are people who have completed suicide or died by suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's so helpful because it is a, such a wide spectrum, right? It's not black or white. It's not on or it's off. There's such a such a wide, wide spectrum. And so, you know, somebody who's died by suicide, obviously they are no longer alive. And that can be they were intentionally trying to end their life, and so they, which they were successful in that regard or they were unintentionally trying to end their life, but also didn't care if they lived or died and, and still resulted in, in dying. So, you know, on our, on our campus, we're fortunate that the folks who die by suicide is, is a small number, zero, one, two, a year kind of thing. But like you're saying, as you kind of move up and down that spectrum, so folks who have attempted suicide kind of move down from they've died to they've attempted suicide, which attempting suicide can even also look really different, right? So that may be, I uh, took 10 Tylenol in an attempt to kill myself, but it didn't work. And I wake up and I'm really angry that I woke up. Or I decided to, I took 10 Tylenol and decided to call my friend because I got really scared. And so, that, you know, I still made an attempt to, to not live. Um, and for whatever reason I did live, and then again, as you kind of move down that spectrum of, of thinking about suicide, which is very common, it's very common, it's very, it's a human reaction to pain. And I think that if people can understand that as well, that the idea of not wanting to live is a human reaction to pain. And, and it's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to pathologize. It's not necessarily something to medicate, for example. Um, it just is a, is a human reaction to pain. And on any given day, about 25% of students across the country, so you know, UF, for example, that'd be about 13, 14,000 students would say, you know, I don't know if I want to live right now. Um, and that, that's it. That's a lot of gators that are struggling kind of on any given day, which doesn't mean that they'll attempt to take their life. But in that moment, they're wondering, is, life, is it worth it to keep living? That's a lot of people. And there's a lot of people at the University of Florida, but also thinking about how many students across the country that covers. I guess with thinking, so there's a huge pool of people who are potentially considering suicide and maybe not seriously considering it where they're at a place where they would are close to making an attempt 
mm-hmm. but that, that that it's coming up for them that mm-hmm. they're in that much pain or distress or feeling hopeless or trapped or scared or whatever is going on underneath the surface that's leading them to have that thought. You know, where do you start if a student says, I'm, yes, I think about, I'm thinking about suicide. What are some of the questions that you want to ask them really to just determine their risk at the time? You know, honestly, for me, um, and I, you know, I imagine different counselors are different, but for me, I really see suicide's not the problem. Obviously, nobody Nobody wants to feel suicidal. Nobody enjoys feeling feeling that way. But for me, it's I th- really think of suicide as the solution. You know, I use that word loosely, but solution to the problem. And so for me, if somebody comes in and they're saying, you know, I don't know if I want to keep living anymore or some version of that, I really just start with what's going on. Because for me, you know, a lot of times what I'll learn is what's going on is a relationship has ended or they fell out of a class and parents are disappointed or they thought they were going to have this future with this person that they're no longer going to have. And those are the things that I'm curious about. Those are the things that I really want to know because oftentimes if there's, if those are, if those things can be talked about in a way that can feel heard, then that can even lessen feeling suicidal, even if it's just a, a teeny tiny bit. And that can feel some relief, you know, so maybe it's the gosh, well, I don't necessarily want to die, but I can't imagine continuing to live with this much heartache anymore. And so then for me, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's explore the heartache and really kind of digging into some of those pieces. And obviously if they're, you know, needing to know from a kind of counseling perspective, some of the more specific pieces of suicide of if they've, how much they've thought through that, the, the plan, so to speak, and how serious are they? And on how much are they not wanting to live, but those are oftentimes pieces that I explore after I explore just kind of the general what's what's going on that's led to this, because again, sometimes it can be one thing or, you know, kind of a cluster of things that relationship has ended, or sometimes it can be a, a lifetime of things that have just continued to add up and add up and add up, and those, those can feel hard. And so I'm almost hearing that your goal isn't to at least initially, your goal isn't, oh, make that suicidal, make those suicidal thoughts stop. That's not your goal. Your goal. No, and I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think would be naive, honestly. And I think would be disrespectful because that's saying that there's a simple, it's simple and it's not simple. It's, it's, it's crazy complex. And, and again, I've not ever talked to anyone that has that suicide has been a rash decision, rash decision. And that, and again, there, that, that can happen, but it's not, it's very common. And even when I think back to my friend, Sarah, when we look back, when our friend group got together, when our basketball team got together, when we talked to her mom, there were lots of things that were going on that none of us knew about. But as we talked together, as our friend group talked together, that's where we learned about all of those things. And so you know, so for me, I'm not starting with let's make it stop because I think that's naive and, and again disrespectful to say that it's that easy that we can just make this stop, that these thoughts stop. Do people who are thinking about suicide give indications that they're thinking about that? More often than not, they do, and the literature would tell us about 90% of the time that that's true. And that's been my personal experience with, with Sarah and then other individuals that I've known along the way that have died by suicide. Um, in my professional experience as well. And so I think the hard, t- so they, people can um, give things away. For example, my husband's in the construction field and they just had someone who 
attempted suicide and lived in their field. And he gave away all of his tools to another worker who did the similar trade that he did. And people can give things away. They can say things that are clear, unclear. You know, they may say something like, what's the point? Or they may say something more directive. I don't want to live anymore. And so that's more common than not. But again, I think it's met with, it's met with, thank you for the tools, you know, for example, or it's met with, oh, you don't really mean that. Or it's met with things will get better. My friend, Sarah, we, you know, we each had a little sliver of the kind of what the bigger picture of what was going on for her but we didn't talk about it with each other. You know, so I knew a little piece that was going on with somebody that she was dating and another friend knew something that was going on with her mom. But we, you know, we didn't talk about it till after she had, had died. And so now for me, it's, I really encourage people to try to talk to each other about a friend that they're worried about to kind of make that hindsight foresight which I know is a little bit put the picture together to know like, Hey, Mm -hmm. should we talk, should we, we should ask our friend and absolutely get them to maybe talk to a professional or somebody they trust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The loss to suicide that I experienced when I was 19 or 20 on the university of Florida campus, he was my, my, one of my sister's longtime boyfriends and the relationship had blown up in this really embarrassing way for him. And he just kind of spiraled into a deeper and deeper depression. And in the week before he died by suicide, he came around and said goodbye to every one of us in the family mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. said he was moving away and mm-hmm. he didn't quite know where he was going, but he was going to move away and we wouldn't have to worry about him anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. after he died and we got together, we all realized that we had had an eerie feeling when Mm -hmm. he said goodbye, but we didn't know what it was. And nobody, like you're saying, nobody compared notes. Nobody Mm -hmm. said, Doug Mm -hmm. came by and said this and it felt weird. Do you know Mm -hmm. if he's okay? Do you know what his plans are? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I remember not sharing anything that Sarah had shared with me because she said, don't tell, (laughs) you know, and I was going to be a good friend and I wasn't going to tell anybody. Um, and it wasn't even necessarily, she wasn't talking about suicide, but she was just talking about the relationship that had ended and how she felt about the relationship that ended, but she didn't want anybody to know that she had been so in love as a ninth grader, cause that's embarrassing. And so I was being a good friend. And again, I wish what I think of as a good friend now is very different than what I thought a good friend was at 15 years old or, you know, and again, fast forward that to 18 or 24, or even my current age, but yeah, what I would do something different now. and. What I know now professionally and personally versus what I knew then is very different. And I, you know, I think we know too now that curious if who's listening, if, if you're feeling suicidal now or have in the past, what the, what the literature indicates is that we really struggle most intensely for two, three weeks. And then after that, not that we're not struggling anymore, but the, the sharpness of that pain lessens a little bit. And we can maybe see that there's some um, hope on the horizon. And so, again, for me, if Sarah had been able to kind of ride that wave a couple more weeks, would hope have shown a little bit on the horizon differently for her. The students who are suicidal that I've worked with fall generally into two categories. And the first category, which I think is the most common, is students who are in a kind of crisis that has happened and whether that's the failing of class or a major or a, a loss of a significant relationship, 
financial, whatever, but like something has happened pretty recently and they are responding to that distress with wanting to die. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of one category. And then another category is uh, students where thoughts of dying have been with them for many, many years as a response to the Mm -hmm. pain. And, Mm -hmm. And like you said, things just adding up and those students maybe were victims of repeated traumas. Maybe they have a sexual orientation or gender identity that's not been accepted for many years. They, they have something that is a struggle that's much longer term and mm-hmm. pervasive mm-hmm. and that su- suicide as an option has almost become like yeah, com- comforting in yeah. a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I, again, I think it's that piece of, you know, there's power in knowing that I could end my life. Like there's, there's, there's relief in that. There's um, a sense of autonomy in that. And which is again, why I would never ask anyone to promise me that they'll never kill themselves. I mean, I think that's rude on some level. And I, and I couldn't promise somebody that because I don't know what, for my own self, I don't know what life will hold. So yeah, it's relieving because there's, there's power in that, there's autonomy in that, there's relief in that. And so knowing that if it got really bad, I could take my life provides comfort. Absolutely. And so I think for me, you know, working with, with like you're saying, kind of these two kind of groups of folks, for me, it's the, can we increase the other options, right? So the other options are suicide. Absolutely. That's an option. What are some of the options that we can add to the plate? Because it does, it feels scary for me and, and oftentimes scary for the for the person that I'm working with if that feels like it has become the only option where there used to be more and they've fallen off the, the um, list of eligible options for whatever reason. So that work that I would do with that person is what other options could, what other things could we potentially make as an option, a viable option that feels appropriate or attractive enough. I've really considered suicide at two different points in my life and both were at those really extreme places where things had happened and I didn't see, I think that that one was, I was really young, 13 and my parents were going through a terrible divorce. But the second time in college was, I just, I, life got to a place where I didn't see that I was going to have a life that was worth living. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. The future started to get like close in on me. Mm-hmm. And I had, I've, you know, I've talked in another episode about some sexual assaults that happened. And I think in response to that, I started to get, I didn't get any help and I got really depressed and I failed out of a semester at UF after being a straight A student my whole life. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I, felt like I couldn't tell anybody that I had been assaulted and I had started smoking a bunch of cigarettes. And then I went and got a checkup and learned that I had an STD mm-hmm. and it was this, and the STD was like, a, at, I'm, I've recovered from it fully now, but at the time I, there was just so much shame. And sure. I thought who would ever want me again? And I was already feeling kind of ruined from what had happened before mm-hmm. and and I was a scholarship student poor and so I'd failed out of a semester and I was just like all of my dreams and goals and hopes felt Absolutely. like they yeah. just 
like I couldn't see how I was ever going to get from where I was back to a place where like I, I could have a life that was really worth living, mm-hmm. you know, and I tear mm-hmm. up now because it's so different for me now, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad that I, I don't know, I think maybe I saw a counselor or I told my dad or somehow I let somebody know that I was in that place and they, they, they encouraged me to helped me get into counseling right away. And it was mm-hmm. like, from that point, I began the long process of digging back out again. And it was, it was all about healing and addressing those other things like, you know, my shame, my guilt, my trauma, my health. As I, as I addressed those things, gradually I started to want to live again Mm -hmm. and I've never Mm -hmm. gone back to that place Mm -hmm. again. Like, Mm -hmm. like life has truly become worth living. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the beautiful part of that experience is that you made it out alive because I have, I, I still keep in touch with a student that I um, taught when he was an undergrad student. I was a doc student who's in you know, a class that I taught, very suicidal at the time. And I learned that through some journal, some writings that they were supposed to submit. And he still keeps in touch with me on social media today as a, you know, a wife and a one-year-old daughter um, and has shared with me over the years. And so that would have been, you know, going on the 15, 20 year side now, but gosh, I'm glad that I chose life. Um, even though he didn't purposefully or intentionally choose life, maybe life chose him, kept plodding along through this time that didn't, didn't, there was, you know, it was darkness. There were no easy answers. No, exactly. Exactly. And, um, has he since talked when, when on social media, just about, had he made a different choice at that time that he would have none of these things. But in that moment, he could, you, you, no one could have convinced him that life would have any meaning, value, purpose to it. Yeah. Um, and I hear that so much. And I love hearing that because that means they're still alive to, to, to know that and to learn that. Um, but during those times when it's so dark and it's so lonely and it's so hopeless, um, those there's n- no, glimmers of any kind of hope can even shine through. And I've had people tell me that that during those times the only glimmer of hope they had was knowing that they had an appointment with mm-hmm. you know with somebody who would really listen and connect with them at, mm-hmm. at the loneliest darkest time of their lives that there was a time when that's all they were hanging on for and mm-hmm. I'm always you know grateful that I can serve that rule for someone, but I'm also always aware that that should be only a very temporary thing that, that we want to gradually build in other things to Mm -hmm. look forward to and reasons to live. Um, And so I wonder, it's almost sounds like it's on a spectrum. So for people who might be thinking about this based, based on something that's recently happened and they get some help and they can kind of as they resolve whatever that underlying thing is, they can get back to being committed to living and not thinking about suicide anymore relatively quickly sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then for others, there's more of a longer term process. And maybe in some ways for all of us, since we're human, suicide is theoretically could always be on the table, but it stops being the thing that 
that we go to when we're mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when we're in pain it because we we become there become so many more reasons to keep living even when mm -hmm. it gets hard yeah and again i think it's always on the table for anyone any human you know maybe it's number 55 or 155 versus number two or three or four the whole um, if all else fails right absolutely absolutely yeah why don't we talk more about this stuff with one another i mean you've already said we we don't get when we try to tell our friends or family members like often their responses aren't very helpful but I'm, I'm also thinking, gosh, 13,000 students at any given time just on mm -hmm. our campus alone. Are people embarrassed? Are they ashamed? Are they like, what's going on? Why, yeah. why aren't we more open about this? Yeah, if it's right. such a human If it's so experience. common. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I think, I mean, even in kind of your experience that you shared about, you know, sharing about, I mean, to me, the shame and guilt is always the thing that leads that I should be able to feel better myself. I should be able to handle this, um, especially in kind of Western culture where we have such an individualistic lens. If you go to Norway, for example, mental health, suicidality is a community experience and the community comes together to support the person. Um, in Western culture in America, it becomes an individual experience. It becomes something's wrong with you. And I think, you know, that just, that doesn't feel good. Like it, when we send folks away, we send them to be locked up in a facility if they express suicidality. And that's another big reason that people say, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to get, to get locked up. Not to mention the shame and guilt and the feeling that they failed themselves or they failed their family member or their friends. Um, or a yeah, lot of I can. Mm -hmm, that sense of failure is so, mm -hmm. like, I felt like I had brought on all the things on myself, mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. the sexual assault and mm -hmm. just everything that came after all felt like my fault. And I felt like I should have been able to deal with it all so much better and that I was just doomed. Right. Right. And, and, and our students will, I mean, the students that I talk with at least share that, that same sentiment of, I should have studied harder that why they failed a class or I should have all of the shoulds, you know, that, that feel really true. And, you know, when we are talking, especially about a top five, top 10 public institution, the pressure, academic pressure, social pressures that come with that, we know our students really squeeze out the things that keep them well in balance and bring them joy to study more or join more clubs. And, you know, those things aren't necessarily the, the, the best things to do, but at a school where the you know, drive for five pressure exists, um, it becomes more of what our students are, are feeling as well. And so they're, you know, I'll have students say all the time that they didn't tell anybody because they didn't want to look weak. And if they look weak, then their classmates are going to look stronger and then that's going to help them get the internship or get the job. And so they didn't tell for those reasons because of a fear of appearing weak. Yeah, I've heard that one a lot too, especially mm -hmm. telling your peers mm -hmm. that you're friends with, mm -hmm. but you're also competing with. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I'll say that. Does anybody know? Have you shared with anybody? And Sometimes the answer is yes, and, and sometimes it's no. You know, sometimes it's a yes. It's a, a few safe people, which which makes sense, right? I'm not going to share everything with everybody, um, but sometimes it's no. And when when I've asked, you know, what keeps you from that's that's a big one that I've been hearing more so lately, actually, than I have in, in the past. You said something about that fear of getting locked up. I mm. wonder if we could talk about that because. I suspect that's a common barrier, even for coming in and talking to a counselor 
for the first time, maybe even mm-hmm. just deciding one day I'm in a really bad place. I'm going to walk in and use the drop-in services. Mm-hmm. What do you know at least about the rules in Florida and even maybe more specifically to the Counseling Wellness Center at UF? What would be helpful for students to know who are afraid if I say that I've thought about killing myself, they're going to lock me up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's the one, you know, again, I started this work in my 20, as a 20 year old, actually, I wasn't even 21 yet, but, um, and that's actually what drew me to UF's counseling center was our counselors are very, very, I don't even know kind of how to, how to describe it. We're looking for what else, because we really, really don't want to send anybody to the hospital. There's so much information out there that that's not necessarily the most helpful thing. And so we are always looking for what else, what else can we do? Who else can we include that you feel safe, is safe to involve in, in this? Where else can you go? Can you go to a friend's house? Can your mom know um, all of the what else is? And so really, which is again, the beautiful thing that I like about our counseling centers, we're really trying to exhaust all of the other what else's. And if, if we've exhausted all of those what else's and there is nothing else, then that's maybe where we would have the conversation about, here's what I think we need to do then because there, there appears to be no other option or we've exhausted all the, of the, of the other options, which hasn't been all of our students' experiences. You know, perhaps in high school, talking to a school guidance counselor, they may jump towards involving the school resource officer or hospitalizing the, the person. Our counseling center, I'm very, very thankful that that's our position. What are some of the more serious arrangements or safety plans that you that you can recall making with students to help them avoid going to the hospital for the night? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so a lot of if if I'm really, really worried about somebody, you know, for example, they are very actively suicidal, meaning they they have a, a well thought out plan and they have a, an ability to to kind of carry forward with that plan. And I'm still able and they're still able to engage in some of that what else right what else can we do you know it may be that they're we're including a a friend or a trusted adult in that plan where they're going to that friend's house or adult's house or we're letting them know on the phone you know for me it's I don't really want the person to to kind of be alone because I think when we're alone with ourselves that's um, that can be a scary time as well so if, if they cannot be alone and if they can be with somebody that knows is really my preference because Again, as as embarrassing or as weak feeling as that may be, it's more helpful because that person, if they can know, they can kind of, they don't have to say anything necessarily, they can be around and be available. And it may also be, so that may be a part of the plan and the other parts may include that they're calling and checking in frequently and frequently can depend on the situation, but maybe it's every hour that they're calling and and even just checking in with our counselors every hour for the next day or the next couple days or the weekend. And then they're coming back in and we're continuing to kind of talk about where they're at and if it's better or worse than the day before, the hour before, because sometimes it's hour by hour and having to engage in it in that way. So it sounds like it, it can get really like that sense of just working with somebody can we buy you a little bit of time? Can we buy you, can we buy you a little bit of time to have somebody around, have some, you know, check, checkpoints, even sometimes hour by hour. How can we get you through the night until Mm -hmm. we can meet again tomorrow? Mm -hmm. What does the next few days look like? 
And again, if tying it back to what you said, that the research suggests that that really, really dangerous time can sometimes just be a matter of a few weeks. That if if we can, how do we kind of keep you safe when this gets the most intense? And Absolutely. like ride the wave to get to, to get to the other side of right. this hospitalization, uh, you know, it's a last resort can also be traumatic in and of itself to go mm-hmm. to the hospital. And so mm-hmm. if we take someone who's already at their most vulnerable, lowest, darkest place and send them, send them to a hospital where they have to wait to be released until an expert mm-hmm. says they can get out of there, that that can be in and of itself not helpful and maybe even raise the risk mm-hmm. once they get out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't even have anything to add to that because I yeah. think that's yeah, that's really the case. And, and, I, and I do know, and again, if you know, depending upon who's listening, if you're in that really, really dark place, the thought of in two or three weeks that you'll feel better or feel, again, I shouldn't say better, feel a touch better, right? Feel a teeny tiny touch better can, can feel even ridiculous in of itself in, in, that, in that moment. And I really think about it like, somebody, you know, who's fallen into a really, really deep hole, a deep hole. And so you can't even see anymore that there are people out there that can be helpful. You can't see the friends, the family, the the future job. It doesn't even exist because all that you see around you is darkness. So that's oftentimes where the, another person has to come because you've tried all of the things to get out of the hole. You've tried climbing out, you've tried shouting to get out, you know, you've tried scraping and clawing at the sides to, to get out of the hole oftentimes and um, it doesn't feel like those things even exist but if again if somebody can come along to kind of help because again we can't we can't do it all on our own I think we try too often in western culture to do it all on our own and we need to pull in other people which doesn't have to be the hospital I guess to loop back to kind of what you're saying so someone can come along and cr- crawl in the hole with you yeah, I mean, that would, yes, yes. And I think that that's oftentimes the only thing that can really help is if somebody can get down in there and, and see what you see as best as they can through their eyes, because I'm not going to see it the same way because I've only been in the hole with you for a minute. You've been in there for days, weeks, months, years, and you're going you're gonna to know every nook and cranny of that hole that I'm not going to know, but I'm going to tr- get in there to try to see what you see because that's the only way that we can really as people who care say, I, I, I get it as much as best I can. I can't clearly get it because you've been in this hole. You've examined it upside down, inside out. Um, but then together, maybe you got to stand on my shoulders and somebody else has got to pull for that piece because of being, being in a hole for a long time, you, you, you lose your energy, right? You lose, you lose your energy, you lose your ability um, to, to see anymore. And so that, that partnership with a counselor or a trusted friend or spiritual leader is is really oftentimes what can get folks through. Is that journey of getting out of the hole and getting gradually back to living a life that's worth living, is that what keeps you doing this, Megan? Is seeing that people people actually can get out of the hole and go on with things? Yeah, you know, I think what got me initially interested 20 years ago after Sarah died was was selfish reasons. What did I miss? What did I not see? How could I have better helped? Um, and that's definitely evolved over the last 20 years of seeing, again, that, like I said, this former student who now has this beautiful life share about how beautiful that life is. And, you know, the whole 
is so far in the past for him that it's hard to imagine that it was even so, so dark. And so all encompassing. Yeah. Right. The his whole life. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, the, the honor of being allowed on that journey and being trusted with that journey is something that I never take for granted because it, it is such a, a privilege to be allowed to sit in the hole, frankly. When you put it like that, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound nearly as depressing as I might think it would be if I was just hearing that you're a counselor who has specialized in suicide for the last 20 years. You know, I remember somebody years ago saying to me, well, you only do this because it's your job. And I remember being really hurt and offended by that and not really being able to articulate why, you know, why I was hurt and offended by that. But again, as, as time has evolved for me, I think the part that felt hurtful about that was that it's not, it's not just a job, you, you know, it's, it's really that piece of I think folks who, whether it was my job or not, I don't want somebody to die. Um, I want to try to understand what, what is leading them to not wanting to live. And again, just like whether it's a counselor or a trusted friend that is a part of that journey, I, I think as humans, that's really, we don't, you know, you don't want somebody that you know and care about to be struggling so much so that they don't even want to live. I have heard that from students as well and, and people I've worked with who aren't students. And I think what's so amazing about this work, and especially when the point at which we get to meet people as counselors, that they are often going through the darkest time of their lives, whether they're mm -hmm. suicidal or not. Mm -hmm. that it is such a gift to be able to know other human beings in mm -hmm. those hurting places because so much of our lives we're just barely scratching the surface of what what we're really feeling and what we're really going through mm -hmm. even with our colleagues like often it's just professional and hey how are you doing and oh I'm okay or we'll know like a little bit of other people's mm -hmm. journeys but as a counselor to get to really see what life is like for other human beings it makes me feel so much more human myself oh absolutely yeah because we're connected to something bigger than ourselves and real know? and yeah. like yeah, yeah. and that's that's mm -hmm. part of a shared experience mm -hmm. that we're not usually talking about mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. even though i don't usually share about my own journey like recovering from being in a suicidal place and mm -hmm. going through trauma. I don't share about that a lot with my clients and students. I, it's in there somewhere. And it's like, it's like, yeah, I, we struggle in this life. We really do. And the struggle can really, really suck at times. It means so much when other people can just be there for mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. if, if we get the support we need, if we get the connection we need, we can often begin to dig, like you said, dig back out of the hole and start to put the pieces back together again. Yeah, because sometimes we don't even know what pieces are there still, what pieces we want to keep, what new pieces we need to add. But once we decide, there's kind of this decision, even if it's temporary because life can change, of, okay, I'm going to try to live a life worth living. What does that even mean? What does that include? What does that not include? Maybe that means disengaging in some friendships that are toxic or disengaging in some family relationships that are toxic. And that's, that's super hard also. 
And that's kind of, again, where I'm so honored to be able to be a part of that journey of, okay, how do we explore not having your mom in your life? Because that's, you know, gosh, that's not, not even, isn't, has never been an option before, but whereas suicide has been an option. So maybe we need to move this piece out or around in order to have the piece of life feeling livable again come into place. Students that I've talked with along the way who've had a really toxic relationship with with parents, for example, that they are making things worse as opposed to better, you know, and so if they shared that with their parents, their parents would say, well, you're, you're, you're a waste of breath. Why don't you just kill yourself? Or maybe not that drastically, but, but that theme of things. Um, and so even just ex exploring the idea of if you had no contact, less contact with your parents or different kind of contact, what would that start to mean for you? Because that may be that piece of, again, suicide not being the problem, but the answer to some problems. And maybe the problem is this really toxic family life that's been going on since you were five or as long as you can remember um, and trying to shift, put some energy into shifting that, which can be really hard too, because that's all, you know, that's all that that person has ever known. And if they don't have that family, then they have no family or feels that way. That feels true. Um, so that can feel that, like a death too, but exactly. it's not, it's not your death. Like you're yep. still carving out a path to yep. live. And so, you know, I mean, I've talked with students who will say, well, I can't break off contact with my family because they financially support me. Um, and so then it's like, okay, how can you hold on to your life and not kill yourself until you graduate and can financially support yourself? So sometimes it's, which feels like a bandaid, obviously. Um, but sometimes that's the conversation of things that they, they want to break off contact, for example, but they financially can't. So then it's a matter of writing out the next two years until there's a different kind of financial stability. I know you did a podcast on um, substance use and kind of college. And I was thinking we have, you know, just that's something that it, I hope folks um, can think about too, is how we, what we know hands down is that substance use increases suicidal thoughts. And so if, folks are struggling and they are drinking, smoking, whatever they're doing, that that can make things um, a lot harder. And so that just wanted to kind of add that in there as well. If you're struggling yourself or if you're concerned about a friend and you've yeah. noticed a change in that. That was all a part of the mix for me at the time. And I, I also think that sometimes as in college when substances might be around at parties and, and something that you are frequently exposed to and you see your friends using that it can be tempting to dismiss friends who say suicidal things or concerning things when they're under the influence because mm -hmm. of the thought that oh that's just the drink talking or oh that's just the, they're just high and that's mm -hmm. you know they don't mm -hmm. really mean it but what, what's actually true in the research, Megan? A lot of the physical autopsies that are done after somebody does die by suicide substances are found in their body. And I forget the percentage, but it's, it's in the 90s. And sometimes that could be because they use substance to end their life. But oftentimes it's they're using a substance to decrease inhibition to kind of carry through with, with a suicidal act. So the, the literature really talks about that. And so just the impulsivity that, you know, we know that we're more impulsive when we're under the influence or less inhibited when we're under the influence um, doesn't mean that that's always true, um, but something to really kind of pay attention to for ourselves. Because I think that it's the, if, you know, we're depressed, for example, and people you know, start to drink more, that's going to exacerbate the depression. 
and make it worse and make it harder to come up with some, what are some of those other options to explore life worth living again? Yeah. Thank you. Anything that you want to share as a way of closing out this episode in the way of resources or just thoughts to leave people with for this conversation? Yeah, there's lots of resources if you're struggling with not wanting to live locally. We have, obviously, we have the, our Student Counseling Center, Counseling Wellness Center. We've also had, uh, we're fortunate to have one of the top crisis centers in the, the country in Alachua County, the Alachua County Crisis Center. There's lots of national phone lines as well. Um, 1-800-273-TALK is a national line. We've got different lines for our gender nonconforming and LGBT community in particular. We've got which is called the Trevor Foundation. So there's resources out there and those are gonna all be on the Counseling and Wellness Center's website. There's chat features that, that you can go through, American Suicide Prevention Foundation. So on, on our website, I think there's another resource that again, if you're thinking about not wanting to live, there's a website called livethroughthis.org. Um, it's a really, really beautiful website where the author, um, she shares a little bit about her story and she is a photographer by nature, but she has interviewed individuals who have attempted suicide and lived and, and takes a picture of them as well. But it's the largest qualitative database of suicide survivor stories. And so again, if you're in that place of not wanting to live, sometimes reading through those stories of how people did live through this and how they were able to kind of make it through this other side that when it didn't feel possible, can be really helpful in finding connection to somebody else who's had a lived experience similar to yours. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Live Through This because it is such a powerful website mm -hmm. and I encourage anyone to check it out mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. then you also see that uh, suicide touches everyone, mm -hmm. the, the, the faces, the, the cultural backgrounds, the gender and sexual orientations. It's, it, it, you know, it, it truly does doesn't discriminate. discriminate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no, there's no face of suicide. It's all of our faces. And I would also say that, you know, locally at the CWC, we do have some groups where uh, students who may have been struggling with the issues that lead them to think about suicide for long periods of time can get support from one another and really talk about those experiences, mm -hmm. talk about experiences of hospitalization if that was traumatic and make plans with others to work on avoiding those outcomes mm -hmm. wherever possible. So you, you might also, depending on where you go to school, look at what groups are available in your mm -hmm. counseling center or your community because what we also know from research is that as much as talking to other professionals can be super helpful, uh, a number of people say that what was also really helpful was talking to somebody else who had been there yeah, and had absolutely. lived through it themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or even trying to figure out how, how to live and through how it. How do we each yeah. figure out how to yeah. live through it exactly. and, and maybe help each other with yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. So reach out if this touched on something that you could connect to and, um, or if you're worried about a friend, again, your local counseling center, crisis center is always willing to consult with you to just kind of talk through someone you're worried about and what are the signs that you're seeing and how might you respond. So we, we can't emphasize that enough. We're here for you. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. And I, and I really thank the folks who are listening to this. because I do think that you know, we can, one small change really ripples the ocean. Yeah. And that idea of we can live through this. It might be really hard mm-hmm. at times, mm-hmm. but I, I know for me, I'm just so glad that I did. And I think my 20 year old self would be stunned to know that I made it to 40 and am here having this conversation Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. same counseling center that helped me out at the time. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.